You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll talk with the creator and performer of the one-woman show, Mimi's Suitcase. We don't have a set, but we have one suitcase, one trench coat, and two scarves, and everything happens with that. We'll dig into the story of displacement, immigration, and trying to fit in that inspired the show, and why those themes speak to so many of us. It doesn't matter where you are, you will always be the other. You're not part of the mainstream, either because your accent gives that message to people and and allows people to to quickly want to know what your background is, or it could be your looks, or it could be your mannerisms, or it could be your principles. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Involuntary displacement, immigration, and a search for identity marked actress Anna Bayat's life. But in her autobiographical performance, Mimi's Suitcase, they become elements of a universal story. The show, created, written, and performed by Anna Bayat, is a coming-of-age story in which one woman plays 27 roles in four different languages. Anna Bayat is an actress who has worked in theater, film, voiceover, and language coaching. Mimi's Suitcase will be performed Thursday, January 23rd through Saturday, January 25th, presented in association with Theater of Yugen at No Space, 2840 Mariposa Street, San Francisco. And she's here today to talk about Mimi's Suitcase and its message. Anna, welcome. Hi, Laura. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So this show is inspired by your own experiences, returning to post-revolutionary Iran after growing up in Spain. And in the play, Mimi is doing exactly that, going to her native Iran after a happy childhood in Spain. Could you set the scene for us to give people a sense of how seismic a shift that is for someone? Sure. Well, the thing about Iranian people is that many... um, left Iran after the revolution. But in the case of my family, because my father loved Spain and used to dance flamenco and loved horses, uh, he was um, a very romantic type of character, as you can imagine. And he was himself an actor and multilingual, spoke six languages, had studied in Germany, lived in Belgium. And um, basically, we emigrated to Spain before the revolution, Mm -hmm. during the Shah's time. And so this shift of doing the reverse of what everybody was doing. Let's just say that it was quite interesting, (laughs) but from the perspective of a teenager who's not used to it and who is undergoing this coming-of-age experience of finding herself in, in the world and in society and within friends and all of that and having no preparation whatsoever for what, what she was going to encounter, meaning a country in a state of war and turmoil, a country that had undergone so many changes that now there were restrictions on clothing for women. So you can imagine this teenager landing there and suddenly seeing a completely different Iran from what she remembered because uh, I remember as, when I was a child, and we see this in the show as well, that our television was dominated by American series, dubbed dubbed beautifully, by the way, because dubbing in Iran is amazing. <laughs> I mean, even to the point of dub, dubbing My Fair Lady wow. beautifully. And so all of a sudden, Charlie's Angels... Little House on the Prairie, all of these series had given way to slogans of war and martyrdom and all of that. The other shocking thing for me was, why are people not more shocked? In other words, I was truly baffled by it all. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was definitely a period of adjustment, but something that helped me regain my willingness to 
carry on, basically, not to sound like Maria Carey, but <laughs> my, my willingness to sort of find a raison d'être again, you know, a reason to be was, um, was, was theater, basically, uh, drama training. Before we get into that, what prompted your family to return if ever, if a lot of people were sort of leaving at the time that you were coming back? Why? Yeah, no, for us it was purely financial because my grandmother, who was a businesswoman in Iran, and her business uh, supported all of, all of the family, all of her children and their extended families. Uh, when the revolution happened, a lot of these businesses... You know, there there was some sort of a break in the flow of things because the workers were protesting and everything. And so money was not coming out as easily. You've said that your relatives tell you you were inconsolable, crying for eight months after moving back. You were 14 at the time. What do you think it was that you were you were mourning? I think I was mourning uh, an interrupted adolescence. I think essentially it was that, that I was finding myself. I was happy with my friends and in school and uh, all of a sudden I was uprooted against my will because I had no choice. Of course, a child has to be with their, with, with their parent and I completely understand that now. But maybe at the time I was thinking, you know, why didn't we fight harder to stay or maybe we could have thought of ways to have the teenager have a way back so that it's not a bridge that's completely broken. And um, I, was, uh, I was very sad. I was very, very sad, yes. So then you found theater. How, how did you find your way into the performing arts? I mean, obviously you said your family was already involved in, in this scene, but... This is a, quite an amazing story. My, my father had studied with the Osquiz, and the Osquiz were a couple who had lived in Moscow for 10 years and studied with Zavatsky. And Zavatsky himself had studied with Vartangov, who was one of Stanislavski's favorite pupils. And so it was this lineage of Stanislavski, Vartangov, Zavatsky, the Osquiz, my father, and then a very innocent trip to a Chinese restaurant off of some alley with my parents, put the very same school that my father had gone to on, in front of our eyes. And my father, we, we, we get out of the car, my, my father looked ac across the street and said, goodness, that, that is the very same drama school that I went to. And he thought, could it be true that Osqui might be alive, much less having, you know, the, the Stanislavski school still going on after the revolution? So he goes in, comes back all paid going, Sure enough, he's alive and kicking, girls, come in. And so he <laughs> took my hand, took me in. And Osqui was this man who looked like Einstein, you know, with piercing foxy eyes and very thick eyebrows. And he basically said to me, you know, you're very young to join the school, but I guess I can make an exception. And so um, going to that drama school basically saved me, saved my soul, because I truly, truly, truly um, could not find it in me to find joy again. Until you, until you found your calling. Yes. So when you and your family returned to Tehran, you found this underground lifestyle where youth and, you know, everybody, people were enjoying Western pop icons, but they had to do it in secret. What is that like for you at the time? Well, you know, you pretty pretty soon learn to have your shrine, meaning all of your walls covered in posters uh, <laughs> with, you know, Spandau Ballet and Nena and Kajagugu and everybody else, uh, Blondie, Madonna. And uh, you then learn, okay, where do I go to get these cassettes? 
All right, I go to Gandhi Street. All right, if I go to Gandhi Street, there will be men in raincoats, um, you know, proudly displaying in secret all the cassettes inside <laughs> their coats. And you can buy those cassettes and you can reproduce them and you can share them with your friends. And you also have people coming from abroad and maybe they manage somehow to um, pass through um, customs uh, some posters or some music. And then what we, re what we had, which was amazing, now looking back on it, were these guys who would really risk their neck and have these um, briefcases full of the latest blockbusters. So, for example, I, I watched Flashdance and Footloose and Dirty Dancing all at the same time as you guys did, <laughs> only that he was in hiding and maybe the quality wasn't as good. So is this something that was sort of a... A thrill because it was not allowed, but, you know, everybody does it? Or was it, you know, legitimately dangerous? You did just say somebody would risk their neck to bring these things over. No, it definitely was dangerous. And, I mean, of course, now, 40 years after the revolution, recently there was a comedy actually out of Iran where this very thing, this very topic was portrayed, and people are like, ha, ha, ha. And in my show, too, there are a lot of funny moments. And, and the reason for that is because... Once a lot of time passes and you have a big distance, then you're allowed to laugh back at things that mm -hmm. at the time were incredibly dangerous or stressful. But uh, at the time when things were a little bit more closed off, uh, it was very dangerous both for them to be distributing that and carrying those tapes in their cars and for us being on the receiving end and having those tapes in our home. So how did this experience of growing up, you know, being in theater, being in these different sort of the un underground and the open cultures, how did that shape your identity as a young woman in this scene? I think what that does to you when you are forced to grow up quicker than you're supposed to, I think it just, whether you like it or not, it makes you very resilient. And I think for me, one of the biggest themes in Mimi's suitcase is precisely that, that we as human beings are more resilient than we realize. This story takes place in Barcelona, Tehran, London. You play dozens of characters, 27, and you perform in four different languages just from a technical standpoint. How do you make that work on the stage? What is the audience walking into here? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question because the, the technical aspect of, of tackling the different languages, we've been um, dealing with it through you know, QLab, which is a software, and having super titles, much like what you see in, uh, in, in the opera. And much to my surprise, when we took the show to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, I never heard anybody say, oh, gosh, you know, I had to read too much or the super titles were a drawback. I was very surprised that um, that was not of any notice at all and that people were able to identify with the story, even if they hadn't lived in those specific countries. And that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted a, a, a universal story, a story that would speak to anybody. And, and that's why with this new performance that we have, thanks to, to the Neda Nobari Grant uh, Foundation, I'm hoping to reach larger audiences and mainstream audiences so that the play doesn't just become for the countries or the nationalities that it tackles or the languages that it tackles. I would say, much to my surprise, and thankfully, uh, the multilingual aspect of the show has, has, has not been a drawback. 
So you developed this show as a solo performance in a solo performance workshop here in San Francisco in 2007. Why choose to make this show with so many different people and places a one-woman performance? I really don't think that I had the intention of it to be a solo show, and proof of that is that is the fact that I also have written another version, which could be an ensemble piece. I think it would be really wonderful for a group group of six or seven actors, each of whom could get to play, because in the longer piece there are even more characters. There are oh forty some, yeah. <laughs> so I think this would be a great ensemble piece. I also, in my wildest dreams, look at it as a wonderful musical because it would pay homage to the pop culture of the 80s in the framework that nobody would expect. In other words, you would never expect a musical that's set around war and turmoil and revolution with the music of the 80s. So in my wildest dreams, I would love to see it be that way. So yeah, no, and, and even a screenplay or, or even animation. So it really doesn't have to be a solo piece. But I think for me, it's a way of showing the prototype that I have envisioned. And then from there, it can take many, many different shapes and forms. We'll get back to this conversation with actress Anna Bayat about the one-woman performance Mimi's Suitcase in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. You're listening to KSFP, a project of the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP broadcasts on this frequency from 4 a.m. to 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., seven days a week. When you tune in at other times, you'll hear programming from KXSF, San Francisco Community Radio. The music you're hearing is from the Blue Dot Sessions. Hear more online at www.sessions.blue. This is 102.5 KSFP LP, San Francisco. Let's hear more from actress Anna Bayat about her upcoming performance, Mimi's Suitcase. This show touches on a variety of different themes, but one that really kind of comes up to me over and over again in in the material that I've seen so far of it is immigration and being a newcomer to a place. And there's a clip in the video promo for the show in which someone says to Mimi, oh, what a lovely accent. And the speaker has a British accent. Excuse me, do you know who this Bill Posters is? I think this is a really, really relatable moment for every immigrant and anybody who's ever, you know, been somewhere where they have to speak a language that's maybe not their first language. People love to comment on other people's accents, and there's always a certain subtext in those moments. What's your experience been with that, and and how does it come through in the show? Well, my experience is that sometimes I'll be talking just like I'm talking right now, and somebody will say, oh, I can can tell you you grew up in Spain. You have a Spanish accent. And I'll say, well, I I see what what you're trying to say, but as a linguist and as someone who teaches Spanish and French, I can assure you that my my accent in English is not your stereotypical Spanish accent. Yeah, no, I mean, people, you're right. People love to quickly, and, and I kind of don't blame them because maybe there's a tendency to want to identify and quickly place you in a box so that maybe they'll say, oh, you know, I went to Spain, and, and maybe maybe the intention is not bad, but from, from where I stand... Um, 
I know that in my lifetime, I felt a little uncomfortable because maybe because I knew that I couldn't in one sentence give my full story. Right. It's like people asking, where are you from? Exactly. And it's like, well, that's actually kind of a long and complicated story. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so maybe maybe part of it is the fear of, you know, if I were to say I'm Persian, then they say, well, why do you say Persian? Why do you not say Iranian? Or, is this a political statement? No, it's it's... it's that's the word in the English language. And yes, it's true that the Shah and his father at some point said, OK, we're not going to call this Persian anymore. We're going to call it Iran, which linguistically, Iran, the word the word Iran means land of Aryans. But I mean, nobody knows that. And so they think that it was just a political thing that the Shah changed. But yeah, where are you from is tricky. It really is tricky because because would it be true for me to say I'm Iranian? Because that's part of who I am, but you know, I grew up in Europe, and of course, Europe is is a is a you know, there are many many countries in Europe. But I, my upbringing and my parents and my family, they were very European. And so, if I said Iranian, what what would that mean? If I said I'm European, what would that mean? So it's more about what's your story, you know? What is your story? I think would be a lot more accurate than where are you from. Yeah, and I think where are you from also has this subtext or or connotation. It comes across, even though people might just be genuinely curious, it comes across as, well, you're clearly not from here. You're clearly not the same as me, right? Othering. Yes. Yeah. You've lived in many different parts of the world before moving to San Francisco. What's your experience been as a newcomer to, and then you know now I, I assume a longtime resident of San Francisco? How do we treat newcomers here? Yeah, no, 20 years, actually. Yeah, I, I arrived here uh, 20 years ago from England, speaking like the queen, uh, because I was, uh, you know, fresh out of drama school where everybody had to have diction lessons in RP and including English people because you could be from Birmingham or Manchester and you still had to learn to speak that way. No, I, I arrived here 20 years ago. San Francisco, I think we all know, is a wonderful place where you don't feel like the other as often as may, maybe other places. Um, but it's true that it, d- it doesn't matter where you are, you will always be the other because you, you're, not, you're not part of the mainstream. Uh, you're not part of the mainstream, either because your accent gives that message to, to people and, and allows people to, to quickly want to know, you know what your background is, or it could be your looks, or it could be your mannerisms, or it could be your principles. It could be what you believe, uh, you know, is appropriate and inappropriate, and, and that doesn't fit into the general belief. So there are many, many indicators, even after you've perfected an accent <laughs> and your fashion, <laughs> there are indicators to, to suggest that you might not be uh, part of the mainstream. Have you found commonality with other people who their story may not be the same as yours, they may not be from <laughs> the same places as you are, but they have these same experiences? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the thing is, when you're multilingual and multicultural, you associate with many different groups and you have an affinity with them. So, for example, I have you know Spanish friends or French friends or English friends or British, uh, for that matter. And... Um, and you do you do end up having some uh, experiences in common, um, but I think 
you know, in addition to that, if you're into the acting business, you are then exposed in a double or triple way to this way of othering. Because I remember, you know, 20 years ago, I arrived here and I was looking for an agent and a lot of the comments would be like, well, you're too exotic. What? Yes. <laughs> you're too exotic. We don't know what to do with you. You have an accent. You can't be cast. Now, of course, now, I mean, think about it now, you know, um, 2020. Now we sometimes, you know, now we're, we get casting breakdowns where it says international English accent or accented English or someone who looks different, you know. And for me, you know, having green eyes is really tricky because in Iran, I don't fit in. And then here I don't fit in for, I guess, I guess my, my accent. I don't know. But it's like you can never be too much or too little of anything. And so on a human level, being an immigrant has the challenges we just talked about. But in addition to that, if you're, if you're into acting, then there's a different layer where you constantly have to prove yourself. And you have to say, please allow me to show you my range beyond what you might see or hear, because isn't that what acting is about, to show range? So the show was developed in 2007 at W. Kamau Bell's solo performance workshop, like we mentioned, here in San Francisco, actually. Then it premiered in 2015 in New York City at the United Solo Festival. And since then, you've been touring it internationally. Like you said, here we are, 2020. What's different about the show now in 2020 from when you were first developing it in 2007? Well, 2007 was just writing a few scenes and exploring and learning from Kamau Bell the ins and outs of solo performance. Um, you know, to your point before, how and why to tell a story by yourself when you could have a group of actors doing it. And so that was learning the tools. And then in 2015, that's when I wrote the full script and then went to New York City to present the workshop performance. But then um, what's different today is that something amazing happened um, about eight months ago, which is that Nedano Bari Foundation gave us a matching grant to remount the show, take it to the next level, and reach larger audiences. And so thanks to that grant, now we're presenting it in San Francisco, refreshed and rejuvenated in a way, because now we've been able to work with artists to contribute to the show either through animation projections or improved technology. And now I'm working with a director from New York, Elise Singer, and uh, we have made some adjustments to the script. So I'm really, really excited to present it because for people who already saw the show, this will be, okay, what has happened after this grant and what, is, what has this grant al allowed you to do? And for those who've never seen it, they will be able to see the very latest version. Mm -hmm. a, a more fully developed version. That's right. And you've had years of experience of bringing it to the stage now as well. Have, have you grown as a solo performer? Oh, 100%. Every time you do the show, you, you discover something new, whether it's a line here or there or the delivery of it or maybe an idea for um, your relationship to an object on the stage. And of course, we don't have a set and... But we have one suitcase, one trench coat, and two scarves, and everything happens with that. But even even with imaginary objects, it uh, it allows you to make discoveries every time. Every time the show is rehearsed or analyzed or performed, there are new discoveries made, and I have learned tremendously 
from this experience. Absolutely. Right now, there's a lot of political tension internationally between the U.S. and Iran. The U.S. government has adopted very hostile positions towards any refugees, especially toward asylum seekers from Central America, toward immigrants in general. And years ago, you told the BBC that when you were developing this play, you were worried about people's inability to distinguish between people and their governments. How does this performance and art like it encourage people to make that distinction? I think when we when you see some of the reasons for which people emigrate that have not been spoken about very often, um, you realize that it's one thing to have an oppressive regime, and it's another thing to see what the people of that country have to live with day by day under that regime. In other words, I don't think that we have heard enough. In fact, I don't think anybody has spoken loudly enough about what the Iranian people go through. I mean, with this this whole um, movement, I think it's called the White Wednesday movement, where the girls are going on the streets, taking off their headscarves, using social media, Instagram actually, because Facebook is blocked, but Instagram is not. And so they, they live stream or they videotape themselves walking half a mile without the headscarf and actually documenting it. We don't talk about that enough. Recently, I think it was a few months ago, so many people were killed protesting and we were not hearing it on, on in the media. We were not hearing it. Mind you, we had our hands full right here in this country and I completely understand that. We had more coverage, but we weren't talking about it. And that's disheartening. Right, and it's disheartening because not just because there, you know there's news happening in other parts of the world and, and these are important and in many cases dangerous actions that people are taking, but then we don't hear about the actions of a people as opposed to the you know barbs exchanged between heads of government, right? Yes, because we then see those dark images and we think that that is the people of Iran. We don't make the distinction that that is... That's not the people of Iran. That's the government. And that is there's a huge difference. But, I mean, that would be true of any country, not just of Iran. The United Would States, for example. <laughs> we, need to, we need to remind ourselves of, of, of that distinction and of the fact that if you go and talk to your grandparents and, in turn, if you can, to your great-grandparents or extended aunts and uncles, you will, you will hear stories of immigration in your own family. To that end, you have plans, dreams perhaps, to bring this performance to the stage in different places. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about those dreams for the show and where you want to take it. Thank you. Well, all being well, and uh, and, and by that I mean uh, <laughs> when when the money when the money gathers, hopefully, um, we would love to take this show on the road in the United States and perhaps to, to non-obvious places, places where maybe they don't get to, uh, a chance to see stories of immigration or stories that humanize immigrants. How have people responded to the piece thus far? I mean, it sounds like you're hoping to touch something in people or remind them of something, uh, remind them of other people's humanity who they might perceive themselves as, as different from. Have you had experiences with audience members who give you that feedback that this has happened for them? Yes, I, I was really taken aback both here when we did a workshop presentation in 2016 and in Edinburgh. I had people from all walks of life and different nationalities coming up to me at the end of the show, sort of um, 
you know, half in tears, but also very amused because the show is also very funny, something I, I did not intend. But it it just happens that, I guess, comedy and drama go hand in hand, as we all know, and um, and, and come up to me and, and sort of with a very tight hug, and I think that already sort of says it, but kind of saying, you know, I really, really identified with the themes. And that was really, really shocking to me because maybe maybe I didn't realize that someone from Ireland would 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 feel that way but they did or from germany or from the states or anywhere really and and that makes me very happy because i think if if there's something i've learned in th- through this experience is that perhaps i want to be continuing on this path as an international storyteller and if that is true then i want to tell stories that are from anywhere in the world they don't have to be from places that I, where i have lived it, it could be from anywhere and if that's true, I'm glad that stories can reach people no matter what their background is. Well, Anna, thank you so much for talking with me about this. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. That was actress Anna Bayat. She wrote and plays the titular character and her entire entourage in Mimi's Suitcase on stage Thursday, January 23rd through Saturday, January 25th, presented in association with Theatre of Yugen at No Space in San Francisco. More information is at... Facebook.com slash Mimi Solo Show. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. <laughs>